Well, good morning. I said that real southern. Good morning. Morning. There's a G on the end of that word, McAllen. Good morning. Okay. I'm glad that you guys are here today. I hope that you have had a fantastic Thanksgiving and that the effects of the tryptophan are well out of your system so that you can kind of stay awake this morning. Welcome to the elementary school kids that are in the room with us today. Glad that you guys are here giving your amazing volunteers kind of a little holiday break um, from teaching you over there and allowing you to join the moms and dads just to kind of see what we do in here on a weekend. We're glad that you're here and we're also glad that we provided you with a really cool worship guide at the start of the service so that you can follow along with some activities that might be a little bit more your speed uh, during the context of the message today. Um, there's a fella that is a part of our congregation, a partner here, and his name is uh, Caleb. And uh, I don't want to spoil anything out there, but on the radio, if you happen to listen to Way FM in the morning, um, he's known as Gavin, uh, and he's on the Wally Show. Um, and he hosts a little segment uh, periodically, sometimes, you know, every week, every other week, called Great Googly Moogly, right? You've, maybe you've heard of this. Um, and it's the idea that they begin a Google query online, and if you start just a couple of words like top Christmas, what would be the next thing that Google would automatically fill in for you, right? And so it may be like events or gifts or ideas, right? And, and so all of the other hosts on the show have to guess what Google would put forth as the best possible search to go along with whatever you begin to try. People are Googling a lot of things right now, and it does tend to be like Christmas gifts. So I did that this week. Um, I Googled top Christmas gifts of 2019, um, and the first two that came up are helping me solve problems I did not even know that I had. Um, the first one is an item called fixed. Now, we eliminated the E in this word, I noticed immediately. It's unnecessary. You can say fixed without the E. For a long time, my kids have always used unnecessary EDs at the ends of words that don't need EDs, and that's okay. So we've got fixed. This product inserts into some, I don't know, somewhere in your car, and it will tell you the things that might be wrong with your car before you ever notice. And so that you know exactly what's wrong with it before you take it in, before someone tells you something's wrong that may not be wrong, you can consult fixed. This little box sends a message to your phone and says, you have a bad fill in the blank with whatever it is, and you need to get it checked out. No need to pay a $50 diagnostic charge. No need to be scammed at any, like, not that any of the places around here do that, but you can know what's wrong with your car before your car even knows what's wrong with its car. It's a top gift for this year. The next one was this, and I was a little bit upset. It's called FitTrack. It's a smarter scale and a smarter you. This is a scale, like a bathroom scale that you can step on, and it will send information to your phone about you. It will say what's wrong with you and give you tips and ideas about what you need to do to improve what might be wrong with you. I'm highly offended. If someone gave me this gift, <laughs> do not put this under my tree. Years and years ago, I was a part of a fitness program at the YMCA, and I remember going in. We did not have scales like this. We actually had a lady at the YMCA that would take a clamp that looked like turkey tongs, like you're like picking up turkey off the page, and she would literally grab portions of your body to measure how much extra was there. And then she would do a mathematical equation that was similar to, I don't know, calculus. And then she would look at a big three-ring binder. It's because we didn't have smart technology, right? It's because it wasn't going to your phone. It wasn't in the privacy of your own bathroom. It was literally in a tiny little room at the YMCA with a lady who pinched your fat and then looked at the side of it. Three-ring binder goes down, finds your age, 
your gender, so male, I was 27 years old at the time, she takes her finger and scrolls across to the edge of the table all the way to the end and a little box printed, like typed out. Someone thought this was diagnostic, fatter than average. (laughs) This is the kind of information that you don't want to learn right after Thanksgiving, (laughs) leading into the holidays. There's a a lot of great gifts out there. Um, And most of them I'm kind of figuring out are attempting to solve for us problems we did not know we had, to fulfill needs in our life that we did not know were present, and to do something for us, um, to promise something to us that would somehow make life better in ways that we did not know it was bad to begin with. Christmas is a lot, right? And and I don't want to put a downer or a damper on anybody's holiday festivities, but Christmas in America... It's a lot. It it offers to us a a lot of maybe the things that we don't need, um, things that will never, ever draw us closer to Jesus, and and probably far too little of the very things that will. Um, And so for this series, I'm I'm really excited about the text that we're going to explore um, because what we're doing is going to a time before Christ, to learn as much as we can about Christmas. So all this series, we're really going to be consulting one Bible verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And it's printed for you this morning in your worship guides. It'll flash up on the screens. I'll read that verse aloud from Scripture in the ESV translation just to get us started on the exploration that we're going to engage this season. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so today, God, we pray. Um, Knowing that you are and have always been everything that you said you would be, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see it, that you would remove all distractions so we can experience it, and that somehow in this moment, long before there were shepherds, long before there were magi, long before there were angels singing and a little virgin girl laying a baby in a manger, we can see and experience and feel the coming of Christ, not just the coming of Christ, but the very reason that he came. Would you do that for us, God? Would you show us who you said you would be, who you came to be, um, and who you remain today for us and in us and through us and even in spite of us, God? It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we celebrate and in that powerful name that we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament, um, countless prophecies um, kind of gave us an, an inkling as to what God was going to do and, and to the promises that God would fulfill. Because in the Old Testament, prophecy always equals promise. It's God saying what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and why it's going to happen. And if God said it, we can bank on it. I know a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was a mentor for me for a long time. His name is Jimmy Britt. And he used to say to me, Nick, I was in college, and I was learning as much as I could about ministry. He would say to me in a country voice, Nick, 
if I tell you the cherries are ripe, you better get your basket. And it sounds really arrogant in the moment, but he was always right. Like if he says, hey, if the cherries are ripe, buddy, you better get your basket. Because if I said it, you could bank on it. Because teaching me things that I needed to know about ministry. And if the Lord has said it, if it's printed between these pages, and not just if the Lord said it, but if his anointed was raised up in the life of the people to come and proclaim his truth, then the people could take it to the bank and know that it was going to be a reality in their life. The challenge, the biggest challenge of the promises and the prophecies that God made is that people had to wait for a long, long time. And, and, and we don't like to wait. Like we're just not a people that enjoy waiting very much. A lot of times in our kids' lives when we were going to give them some big blessing or if we were going to go on some kind of trip or if we were going to experience some kind of fun thing, we would literally wait until the last possible minute to tell them that it was going to happen because if we told them too early, they would ask us too much, right? If we tell you three weeks in advance that we're going to go to Disney World, it's literally 13 times a day, every single day for the next 21 days. Are we going to go today? Do we leave tomorrow? Are we going to go today? Do we leave tomorrow? Like when kids are really little, they don't understand that a promise for the future literally means something that's going to come to pass in the future. And we're not just talking about three weeks of waiting here. We're talking about generations of waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he was going to fulfill all the way back. Hollis read it before to Noah that God was giving a covenant promise to his people. Before he even called and identified them to be his people, he was proclaiming words of promise that would ultimately come true in guys like Moses, in guys like Samuel, in guys like David, in guys like Solomon, in guys like Daniel, and in people like the Israelites as they struggled and as they wandered and as they sinned and as they were in exile and eventually a remnant would return and from them would come a prophesied son, a Messiah, which means Savior. It's where we get the word Christ would come and redeem the people that God had made that promise to generations before. Can you imagine being a people that were called to wait that long, really indefinitely throughout your entire lifetime for the words that God spoke to come true? And even though people had to wait in Scripture, even though we have to wait today, we can always hold on to hope. So if you're in the book of Isaiah, and we're really centering our talk on chapter 9, but we want to go back a little bit to chapter 8 to see what's happening. Starting in chapter 8 with verse 18, the prophet, this guy Isaiah, says to the people, bind up testimony, seal the teaching. It literally means to fasten, to lock, to seal the teaching among my disciples. You see, there was going to be a remnant who would return. This whole group of people was dealing with the fact that the Assyrian army was coming up on Israel and ready to overtake it. You see, before the Babylonians came and took Judah, the Assyrians came and took Israel. And here's the deal. The leaders in Israel at this time were trying to see, can we make a bargain with the Assyrians? Can we get into a relationship with them to make it easier on us in the future? And the prophet comes to warn them and says, don't listen to the Assyrians. Don't listen to their laws. Don't give in to the temptation to go and be their people because it will not turn out well for you. So Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. It's the remnant that will return. It says, I will wait for the Lord who is at this point hiding. Some of your Bible translations say concealing, literally making it so that you can't see, concealing his face from the house of Jacob, like right now, these people have been so sinful and they've consulted the wrong paths. And here he is saying to them, he's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And the prophet says, I will hope in him. I will hope in him. 
It says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs. Isaiah's talking about his own kids, and they all had names that would mean something specific about what God was going to do in the life of Israel. Are signs and portents. I had to look up portents because I didn't know what it was. I was like, what's a portent? I don't even know. Maybe it's a song or a hymn or some kind of old school Shakespearean thing that you might read or something. What in the world's a portent? It's a wonder. It's a miracle. Like these children that God has given me, they are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire to their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Portents are, are wonders and signs. They're, they're proof that you can hope in God. Little miracles along the way sprinkled like breadcrumbs, like in our kids' ministry here. It's like way far away from where we are. And so we, we put these signposts up in all of the hallways and the stairwells to help our greeters and our ushers and to help new families who are going to take the elementary school kids back. Like there are signs that literally say worship on one side and kids on the other to lead you so that you don't get— there might still be some people wandering back there in the halls of Belmont University trying to find where we are right now. If it weren't for those signs, I call them breadcrumbs every Sunday morning because we sprinkle them out as a trail that you might follow to get to the place that you want to go. All throughout the Old Testament, we were giving miracle after miracle after miracle and person after person after person, hero after hero after hero, prophet after prophet after prophet as signs and portents, wonders and miracles like little tiny breadcrumbs to help us follow the trail to the ultimate promise that God was going to give us in Jesus. Promises that would one day be fulfilled all in Christ. You know, when you're searching for something, when, when you're looking for something, um, when you're hunting for the right Christmas gift, when you're trying to buy something for that person that's really, really impossible to shop for, when you're searching for something, where you look matters as much as what you're looking for. Where you look matters as much as what you're looking for. And the problem with the people in this moment is where were they looking? They were looking for the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and muster. They were looking for astrologists and palm readers. They were looking at the religions of the Assyrians, like Saul, their great king, the first one that they had ever asked for. He went and, and, and consulted this witch at Endor. Like, and so this is a reminder for those people, hey, don't do that. You have the great Lord, the God Almighty, the Lord of hosts who knows absolutely everything. Don't go down that path of trying to figure out your problems another way, trying to figure out the future another way because God alone has the answers. So the prophet's saying to them, don't go down the wrong path looking for the right answers because the right answers aren't at the end of the wrong path. Don't go down the wrong path looking for your God because your God's not there. He's told you how to find him. Jeremiah said, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And he's given us the breadcrumbs. He's given us the trail. He's given us the promises. He's given us the words of prophecy to tell us where he is and to tell us what he's doing and to tell us when he's going to do it and to tell us why he's going to do it. And so the prophet says, don't go there. It's almost like a, a spirit of sarcasm. When I read these words in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? It's like sarcasm. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? We're going to go and ask dead people for the answer? 
We're going to grab our Ouija boards and put our hands on a triangle and say, try to get some spirit who's gone to give us an answer about what's going to happen in the future. We're so mediums and sorcerers. What about just the ways of the world? What about just Google? Google's great. I love it. Susan and I are on season three of The Crown. It is a story. Oh, it's fantastic. If you like the royal family the way that we do, you want to watch this show. They redid the entire cast this season with older people so that they could age her up because let's just be honest, Queen Elizabeth is going to be in office for the next 100 years. Someone's like... Charles, you are never getting the crown is what I want to say to that poor fellow. We might as well just pass it on to William today. Like I'm looking at this, this lady. So they're doing different decades of this woman's life. At the beginning of season three, they had me at the first few seconds of realizing that this new actress, she is Queen Elizabeth. And Susan and I literally watch this show with our phones in our hand because we have to Google every single one of the current events that they're talking about just to make sure, is this right? Is that what really happened? Is that what she said? Is that what she did? Like Wikipedia is your friend even in that moment but not when you're trying to figure out your direction in life your hope for the future who God is and and what he's going to do and why any of it even matters and where's the proof that you can trust him I mean maybe it's available online depends on who put it there but ultimately it's available in this word So when you're watching The Crown, grab your phone. But when you want to see the throne, grab your scripture and look at this word and see the prophecies that have come true and the prophecies that we are still waiting for. Winston Churchill, you know, because we're talking about the royal family, he's once quoted as being asked this question, um, give one of the qualifications that it takes to succeed in politics. Winston Churchill said, the ability to foretell what was going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, and the ability afterward to explain why it didn't happen. (laughs) You want to succeed, then you've got to, A, be able to tell everybody what's going to happen tomorrow, and then B, be able to wake up tomorrow and tell them why it didn't happen. God's true prophets never had to play catch up. Because if they were giving a word from the Lord, they were never wrong about what was going to happen. Moses said, it's written down in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, it's a word that the Lord didn't speak. If a prophet speaks and it doesn't come true, it was not a word of the Lord. If a prophet speaks and it does indeed happen, then it was a word from God. And so Isaiah writes to this people, to the teaching, that just means law. That reminds them, oh, the books of Moses, to the law of Moses and to the testimony of the prophets who are speaking the words of God. And if we search through this, we will find the kind of insight and we will find deep reality of what is right. Judas King Ahaz was trusting the Assyrian government and the army for help when he should have been trusting the Lord. 
so many of these prophecies, we get confused because the Bible dances back and forth between prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah, sweet little baby Jesus in your manger scene, sitting on your mantle at home, ceramic, blonde hair, blue-eyed baby Jesus sitting in a basket of hay with a beautiful little creature around him. And then the shepherds came and the wise men came. They all got there on the same day, according to our manger scenes at home, which according to scripture, we know is not true. But that little sweet first advent of Jesus is talked about in these books centuries before it happened but not just the first advent of Jesus the second advent of Jesus not just Jesus in a manger but Jesus on a cloud and the Jesus that we can still be hoping and waiting for today and because we know he came the first time we can trust and rest assured that he will come the next time and that's where this prophecy gets hope filled because we're a people that don't have to wait on Jesus anymore but we're a people that get to wait on Jesus until he returns. There's beauty in that hope. We have breadcrumbs to trust. We have proof that he came. And we have proof that he'll return. And, and we can hope on that for as long as we have to hope for that. Chapter 9 of Isaiah starts out with these words. It says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Anguish literally means constraint. Some, some of you may feel that way. Just kind of stuck. Stuck in a, a rut. Stuck in a difficult situation. Stuck in a really horrible pattern of living. It's, it's anguish. Comes from the verb that means to pour or to cast. Literally like you're casting a mold. It hardens, it's firm, and it's stuck that way. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, for him who was stuck, for you who are constrained. Because in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Naphtali but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were the first to fall to the Assyrian army. But if you want to know where those regions are today, it's the region just to the north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry and the bulk of his miracles. And so here's a prophecy about this little land, these little tribes, these little villages, these little farms, these little groups of people, these trusted saints of old and the destruction that they endured, but then the promise in Christ that they were given. The first to fall but the first to receive the grace that Jesus brought. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And it says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Light was always a symbol of the coming of Messiah. It was always the, the light bulb above your head whenever you have an idea in a cartoon. It was always the wisdom and the moment where you realize, aha, I've got it. I understand. This is what truth is. Light was always synonymous with what was true. And in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. In the moment when we're stuck, in the moment when we're constrained, in the moment where we just can't see in front of our face because we don't know what's next and we don't know where to turn and we don't know where to trust, God gives us light and the darkness can't overcome it. 
So we're reading these words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and we realize that this people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What did they see? They saw the Messiah. They saw the promise fulfilled. They saw the thing that they had been waiting for and hoping for come true. It says you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Multiplied, it's Abraham. Be the father of many nations, and everybody's going to be blessed through you and by you. It's a reminder. This promise isn't just for the people right now. This promise is the thing that we've been waiting on forever. Your people are eventually going to see it. It says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The Midianites oppressed Israel for like countless stories in Scripture. You can go back and read about Gideon in the book of Judges, and it literally says that Midian oppressed the Israelites. And that word oppressed literally means to make small. No more feeling small for you. No more being oppressed by you. That idea of Midian was the idea of oppression. That idea of Midian was the idea of difficulty. That idea of Midian was being made to feel low and small and insignificant and nothing. And when the Messiah comes, that day won't be here for you anymore because God's going to raise you up. God's going to do something better. God's going to fulfill all his promises. It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Because when the Messiah reigns, we don't apparently need our boots anymore. When the Messiah reigns, we don't need our weapons anymore. When the Messiah reigns, we don't need our battle armor anymore because there's not going to be any more wars anymore. He's fought and won them all. How's he going to come for to us? A child is born. For to us, a son is given. Both of those are word pictures of this Messiah who would come as a tiny little human child, representative of the humanity of Christ. But then the Son of God was given. It's a reminder of the deity of God that he would embody, both God and man heir to David's throne. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That word government is the word misra in Hebrew, and it literally means dominion or rule. It it comes from the word that means to contend and to persevere. Misra, the root, is sarah, which is the same in the word Israel, because when Jacob wrestled and contended with God and persevered, his name was changed to Israel. And the government of Israel, the dominion and rule of God's people shall be upon his Christ's shoulder and his name shall be called what we talk about today, what we talk about next week, what we talk about the week after that and the week after that. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The idea of Christ being our wonderful counselor, it matters because we got problems we got problems that the world and our holiday shopping lists want to solve for us, but we got problems that only Christ can handle. That word wonderful, it, it's, it's the word para, and it, it doesn't just mean marvelous or extraordinary, um, wonderful. It, it also means difficult. Wow. It means crazy awe. Are you kidding me? That's impossible. And what it's saying to us is that there is absolutely nothing too difficult, nothing too crazy, nothing too paramount for God to do.
There is absolutely no question, no problem, no issue, no challenge, etc. That's too big for God to handle for us. What's the counsel that you need from Christ? What's, what's the hardship or the question that you have this year that you need him to answer? Is it something about your future? Is it something about this life that you thought you would have, but it just hasn't happened so far? Is it about your vocation? You just feel stuck. And employment, you just don't have it and you need it. Marriage not going well and you want it to. Husband, wife, don't have one and kind of hope for. What's, what's the, the promise that seems unfulfilled or the hope that you asked for that just hasn't been given? What's the question that just hasn't been resolved? What's the conflict that just seems so present? We can consult every other self-help tip, trick in the world. We can look at every other gift list and buy every other gadget and download every other app on the planet to try to make any single portion of our life better. But the problem is we're looking in all the wrong places for maybe the right things when there's only one option that will remain, and it's Jesus. He's not just a wonderful counselor. He's the only wonderful counselor, and it's only in him that we find the, the, the solutions, and not just the solutions, but the hope that we need, because the caveat to whatever counsel you're looking for, to whatever problem you're presenting, to whatever challenge you're enduring is this. Sometimes you have to wait. And there may be para, difficulty in the waiting. But there can also be para, something extraordinary in the waiting. Because your faith can be built. I think there's a reason why Isaiah... I think there's a reason why every single word is written between those bound pages, but I think there's a reason why Isaiah started with the idea of wonderful counselor. Because it readily admits right on the outset, we are a people with problems. We are a people with questions. We are a people prone to wander and doubt and look in all the wrong places for the promise to be fulfilled. All throughout human history, all throughout this biblical narrative, it's laced over and over and over again with a people that got impatient waiting on God. So they went their own route. And every single moment in scripture where they went their own route, it just serves as an example to us about everything that can go wrong when you go your own way. I think that's a song. Go your own way. I mean, um, do it, try it, live it. I think a lot of us in this room are different testimonies of life gone our own way. Some really short, some a little bit longer than others about what it was like to pursue our own path, what it was like to find our own answers, what it was like to fill our own void when there were always breadcrumbs 
And there were always signs and there were always wonders and there were always words and prophecies about who God is and what he's going to do and why he's going to do it and when it's going to happen so that we can trust him. Sometimes the wonder in the waiting is that you learn how to trust him more. It's the muscle that gets built while we wait on God to provide You know, the real challenge with realizing that all of these people, all the ones in Isaiah's audience, none of them made it to the manger. They were all way long gone before that happened. And so what we have to contend with is that if they didn't make it to the manger and they were waiting on the promise, we may not make it to the cloud. Christ may tarry. He may wait a little longer. That's okay because Second Peter says that he's not slow, although we may feel it. Our whole life may go by and the end of it may come and some of the promises still feel yet to be delivered upon this, this wasn't a book written to an individual. These weren't promises made to a person. They were hopeful promises given to an entire people. And we, like them, get to see promises fulfilled to future generations and understand that they too were fulfilled for us. And sometimes by us on the journey that God was taking to fulfillment. But what we can know is that regardless of when they happen, they will happen because God spoke it. And in the meantime, when we have the questions and the doubts and the fears and the anxieties and when we feel stuck in the moment, we can trust that God hears us when we pray and that he provides the answers that we seek when we seek him. I do hope um, that this Christmas you get everything you're asking for. Now you're coming with your list and you're like, wow, my pastor said it. I'm going I'm to add more to it. <laughs> he said, I hope I get everything I ask. I better ask for more. Do it. Ask him for more. Can't hurt. And even if he doesn't provide the more that you're asking for, he will give you more reasons to hope. And he will give you more reasons to trust. And he will expand that muscle in your life to where you can trust him for longer and trust him with even greater than the problems that you present today. There's, there's hope in the waiting. And we have a wonderful counselor who wants to be consulted with everything that it is we're waiting for. And so go there. Go to him. Ask big and trust bigger because we do have a God that provides. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the Christmas words that we can see and experience and, and know and trust. Thank you that in some ways, God, we can learn um, as much about Christmas from the Old Testament prophecies about Christ as we can from the story of when he came. And something about these words about Jesus coming as a a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. 
tells us that in him we have everything we need. Tells us that in him you're providing everything that we could ask for or hope for. Tells us that in him all your promises are made true. Help us to be a people who trust that. Father, for anybody here today who does feel stuck, who does feel trapped, who does feel desperate, who, who does feel even a little bit deserted, my biggest hope and prayer is that they would find their answers, they would find their hope, they would find their peace in Jesus and in this word because all your promises come true in Christ. Pray that you would draw us closer to yourself this Christmas season, God. And that ultimately the list of things that we may want would all fade away in the abundant blessing that we've already been given in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.